Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Tom. Hello, Russ. You doing okay? I'm doing good. I think something's up with that globe, though. <laughs> it's a it's an experiment. See if I get you to comment on it, and you did. So thank you. Now the globe's going away. <laughs> and Yvonne, hey, wait. Your flowers are different. I can't handle that. I got a Christmas tree. <laughs> it's a live tree, so I can go plant it in the yard after Christmas. I did put some lights in it, but um, um, yes. I, you wow, know, I'm home really... all the time. I want something pretty and living here. Wow, so. that is so cool. Which reminds me, I got to do something, but that's okay. All right, and today we are joined by Tyler, who is in Tennessee, Tyler McDaniel. Uh, he has a big sign behind him to remind him where he is, I guess. <laughs> I guess he travels all the time and moves to different states or something. In case like. I forget, yeah. <laughs> in case you forget, you never can tell. And today we are talking about a paper... Tyler wrote and presented at, it was presented at NANOG, right? Um, it will be presented at NDSS in February. Okay, NDSS yeah. in February, cool. About peer locking and uh, flex sealing BGP against route leaks is the name of it. And so uh, let's see. So let's just begin with the beginning. Why did you write this? Yeah. So first, I mean, uh, we wrote it. So I have a couple of co-authors uh, uh, who are guys in my lab, Jared Smith and our advisor, uh, Max Shukard. So just going to just gonna shout them out. But um, uh, the reason we wrote the paper, um, or the reason we did the study uh, was there were some uh, other BGP studies, one from within our own lab that was a, an attack paper that relied on AS path manipulation in BGP. And uh, another paper... Um, uh, that had to do with uh, a hijacking attack in BGP that also used poisoning or uh, path prepending. And so what we were running into was some of these advertisements for these experiments, uh, these previous experiments, uh, were encountering filtering. And we wanted to look at where that filtering was taking place and why. So it, it was a, a, we were just trying to feel out an obstacle that we had encountered in, in, in prior studies. So, so what do you mean by you encountered filtering? You mean like AS path filtering or the routes just weren't getting through someplace or what, what's... That, that's right. So in general, there's, a, there's something called a path prepending you can do in B, BGP because uh, BGP doesn't care what you say a route is. Uh, once you put it out into the, the fabric of the control plane, it'll just be uh, propagated. So you, you can do something called AS path prepending where... You, you tag um, uh, other ASs that aren't in the real path before your own in an announcement and send it out. And because of, of how loop detection works in BGP, which is by scanning this AS path for, a, for an ASN, you can cause people selectively to drop these routes. So in general, except for the people who you want to drop these routes, you expect that these, these poison paths will be uh, propagated throughout the control plane, throughout all the uh, different networks that make up the internet. Uh, but what we found was sometimes they weren't they weren't making it uh, where we where we expected them to go, and uh, we were looking into why. And, and I I think that's what I mean when I say filtering is just these networks that were not propagating uh, these poison paths as we as we expected them to. Okay, so that's interesting. So when you talk about 
filters you were expecting, you're thinking about things like no peer or just even community-based filtering of some kind. Right. Or just or AS path Right. Right. Or or we had done an experiment where we we made an extremely long advertisement where we prepended like 200 ASs or something like that. And then and then you run into some like length filters and things of that nature. But uh, we we in, in this case, someone was actually filtering on the ASs that were in the path. Okay. Uh, it appeared. So that's that's what sort of what um what spurred the study. Okay. And so you just started studying just like why were these paths being dropped? Like were you trying to figure out the policy? Or are you trying to figure out, I mean, like, what the policy, why the why the operator in question might be dropping these paths? Or were you just trying to figure out, like, why was this interesting? Just curious. Um, a couple reasons. Uh, one is that it's it's odd to see. Uh, in BGP, it's kind of, it seems like the Wild West sometimes, where you can put just about anything out there and expect it to get somewhere. And uh, uh, we were actually encountering filtering. So it was interesting for that reason, just why is this happening? But, uh, yeah, I think we had a couple of main thrust. One, we wanted to see where the filtering was actually happening. It wasn't clear because of our limited uh, points of observation on the control plane, who actually was doing the filtering, but it looked like bigger networks. Then the policy, why? What what about these poisoned routes were, were uh, suspicious or, or triggering filters? Okay. So, so you move from that to thinking about route leaking. How did that happen? Right. So we were investigating why these paths were being uh, filtered. And I'm, I'm looking for different systems or, or doing some research, asking some people, some operators, why they might be filtered. And one of the things, one of the reasons is uh, that, that we heard was, well, because sometimes they look like route leaks. We found this system, the peer lock system that was designed to prevent route leaks. But uh, the way it worked also, uh, also touched on AS paths. So uh, we we kind of came into it from that from that uh, perspective. From first, we were looking at why these poison paths were being filtered, probably because they look like route leaks to these systems that were designed to prevent route leaks. Okay, so let's even begin there. Like, what is a route leak? Explain it, because some of our listeners may not even know what a route leak is. I mean, we have a pretty technical yes. audience, but right. So, um, so what a route leak is? Uh, uh, it's a a route that someone didn't intend to propagate. So there's there's an RFC that has a um, a technical definition, but it does go into the intent of the operator. If something that shouldn't have been propagated and and was is is a route leak, and there are many different types. So uh, there are four types that are topological. The first four uh, types in the RFC, and these all have to do with propagating a route that's not in my economic interest. So if I'm uh, if I'm if I have some provider network and they advertise me a route. If I advertise that route to my other provider network, well, now I'm transiting traffic between my two providers at my expense. So obviously that's not an AS's economic best interest and that's one type of route leak. Uh, there are other route leaks that occur. Um, uh, one is called re-origination. That's where uh, I get a route to some destination prefix and instead of propagating it as I should with the AS path intact, I claim that I myself am the uh, in the origin AS and issue the update with no AS path except for myself. The first one you talked about is interesting right. because it's not just not your economic interest. It's also that you may not have the capacity. Right. And this is and, where, this is where a lot of the trouble comes in. Yeah. So not yeah. only am I, am I probably incurring costs on both sides of this connection, uh, but I also may not have a network that's provisioned. If I'm leaking a route that, that hurricane electric gave me, and I'm, I'm leaking it to 
another big, you know, level three or something. Now I'm connecting those two networks over what may be, you know, my much less well-provisioned network. And, and that's where a, a lot of the trouble comes in with route leaks because you can have drop traffic or degraded service uh, to the destination. Okay. So now the second type of route leak you, you mentioned is actually sometimes intentional in BGP because right. we got rid of aggregates and aggregate sets, AS aggregate sets. So now people just reoriginate stuff in order to build aggregates as if they own the entire space. And right. so that's a very difficult one to say whether it's a leak or not, just because you, from the outside of the AS, you actually can't tell. And this is a great point, not even just for that type of route leak, but for several different types of route leak, right? We don't have complete knowledge of what economic relationships are between ASs. They can be closely guarded secrets. So you can look at something and say, well, it, it looks like you're taking a route from a provider and giving it to another provider, but we don't actually know what those relationships are. We don't have ground truth. So yeah, all, all of the leak designations in the paper, or we like to go back and find um whether or not it was reported as a route leak or, you know, whether or not there was significant, significantly degraded service. It's hard to just, you know, with unqualified say something is a route leak. Yeah. Interesting. So, right. So there was something I worked on a long time ago called SOBGP, which was then uh, updated by a bunch of researchers in Spain or Barcelona. I thought, I don't think it was Spain proper. I think it was in Barcelona um, that, Catalonia, which were thinking about how to reverse it into something called a, a state path or a state vector path or something like that, where you would actually expose those relationships. And that's been come out in a more recent draft. And I don't remember the name of it, but it's only for valley free routing, uh, just to keep edge people from accidentally leaking things through. You just expose the provider customer relationship um, within within an ROA, within a certificate that's been signed by an X509, uh, using an X509 structure. So yeah, there are some, there are some ways, uh, even there, there are communities, some people encode some relationship data in communities. And yeah, there's been a recent uh, proposed, I don't remember if it's still a draft, but uh, something called down only communities where I can pass uh, a route to my provider, but I tag it, you know, I tag, or uh, when, when a provider passes a route to a customer, they tag it down only. Meaning don't send this, to, you know, upward to your other providers, something like that. They encode some information in the community. Yeah, well, that's actually the same thing as no peer, pretty much. But yeah. you're still counting on the customer or the non-valley provider or the non-valley operator to filter based on those communities and do the right things. Right, or at least for them to preserve the community and for someone else somewhere along the path, yeah, to, to make that decision to filter. Yeah, and since communities usually aren't passed over EBGP sessions... Uh, you don't usually, I mean, it takes, it takes intentional configuration to make that work. Right. So, okay. So that's the problem we're trying to solve with Wait, peer locking. Were there three? Yep. Were there four? Did we get through all four types of routes? No, oh, so I actually, all the, all the first four types are topological. Then there's the re, um, uh, the reorigination also. And then there's actually a sixth type, which is, um, more specific. I think so if I, if I have some kind of optimizer and it, it breaks a route that I'm that I learn into um, into more specific prefixes, so I'm splitting my own network traffic to that prefix. I shouldn't then advertise those more specific prefixes. I should uh, only advertise my best path to the to the prefix that I was 
that I was originally advertised. So there, those are the, the six route leak types. There are four topological and then these two other cases. And where does hijacking fit into this conversation? Does it? Um, so hijacking and route leaks are, are the two big, uh, I think, the two most obvious problems with BGP right now. I think if you, int- I guess. Uh, it's, it, I mean, is it a motive question? I mean, right. I feel like that's like where right. we get to. Yeah. Like, so, it's a hijack yeah. if you're being nasty. Right. It's a leak if it was an accident. Right. So kind of an intentional, an intentional <laughs> uh, reorigination, I guess, is the same as a hijack. So a, a, a leak that's, that's on purpose, that's a reorigination, probably falls under hijack. Interesting. Okay. So now we've got these hijacks, these leaks that we're trying to deal with. Now, when we're remembering, we started all the way back from trying to figure out why routes weren't making it where they should be making it. Right, now, we're yes. to the, now we're to the point of trying to figure out how to stop them from making it where they shouldn't make it. It's kind right. of an interesting switchover. <laughs> but so explain to me like this peer lock mechanism you're talking about and in the paper and how it works a little bit. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you think it might be deployed and stuff like that. Right. So uh, I guess the, the problem, uh, w- one of the big obstacles to detecting a leak is, like I said, uh, there's, n- there's no knowledge of the global topology at any one place. So there's no, uh, even, even uh, big, well-resourced, uh, well-connected ASs, I don't have the entire state of the control plane. I don't know everyone's relationship. So when I see an AS path, I don't have the information to determine, a, did this go from a provider to a customer and back up to a provider, there's no way of knowing that. So peer lock is interesting because the way it works is uh, if you're my neighbor AS, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you who my authorized upstreams are. And what this means is I'm going to tell you if you receive a route and I'm in the AS path, my AS number is in the AS path. If we're neighbors, then don't accept any routes unless you get it directly from me or from one of these authorized upstreams. So I'm basically telling you, I'm giving you the topological information that you need to stop route leaks that involve my own AS. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is uh, there could be a leak, for instance, if I give a route to my customer and I've already exchanged peer lock information with you and I give a route to my customer, that customer gives a route to its customer and so on. And then only way later in that process does some AS uh, advertise that route back up to a provider and it reaches my peer locking partner even though there have been many ASs in between me and my peer locking partner, my peer locking partner knows to reject that route because it didn't come from my authorized upstream. So that's really cool because it allows two ASs who are neighbors to protect each other from route leaks, even if the route leak occurs in a sort of remote location, even if it occurs at a different point in the control plane. Because we've exchanged this information, we know what we need to know to uh, filter the path. And so, I, I mean, it sounds to me like you're pretty much exchanging an access control list as, as, as part of that peering. You're saying these are the only people who can provide you updates and provide you information on these routes. And, and if you get them from anybody else, like throw them in the bit bucket. Right. It's sort of like a whitelist system. It's saying these are the people who you should trust yeah. uh, to hear about routes that go through me. And so it's, it's, very, um, it's a very cool mechanism. How is that uh, metadata communicated between two different ASNs? However they feel like doing it, unfortunately. There's, no, uh, there's, no, there's nothing uh, listed in the, the peer lock documents that, that I've found about how that process should happen. And this is actually pointed out in the paper as a potential problem because in the absence of a protocol, um, sometimes silly things happen. 
So, and this could, you know, maybe be be leveraged against uh, against networks. So, uh, there's no there's no protocol in the PeerLock documents for that. Yeah, that seems seems like a potential weakness of the approach because any system you'd build to communicate metadata is then another attack surface. Uh, it's, right. a, it's another another vulnerability in the infrastructure. So, give, given all of that, a, a lot of this sounds like it would be a service that you would provide to your customers to protect them. Um, sort of as a proxy, right? What what incentive, um, what's the larger incentive for operators to deploy a, an approach like this? Well, uh, the incentive structure is actually one of the things I like about PeerLock. And uh, the reason is because a lot of the well-resourced, best-resourced networks are those networks uh, in the internet's core, big transit providers. And uh, this system really only requires them to act in their own incentive, in their own best interest. If, for example, if, if I'm a big transit provider, you're a big transit provider, uh, and you communicate to me peer locking information, that helps protect me and my customers as well. Because if I receive a route that's one of these route leaks that goes through small, poorly, poorly resourced networks in between us, I might like that network because it comes from my customers. And that's a cheaper route for me than one that goes through my peers or providers. But because I have this peer lock information, I know that it's a route leak and I won't send my traffic and my customers traffic down that route. So it's, I'm filtering for another remote network, but it's in my best interest because it's preventing me from using, installing bad routes and passing bad routes to my customers that might not get to the destination. So a couple of things there. First, transit providers are actually in financial trouble, a lot of them. So I wonder if they would be motivated to do anything about this right now. Well, and, but I would um, think you could make like an operational argument, like how much are you spending tracking down operational issues because you're getting bad route information? Like what's, what's the cost of that? What's the cost of um, overutilized connections because routes are getting injected that ought not be? I mean, how many tickets are you working a year because somebody sends you bad route information? I mean, I think that was that would almost be how you would have to think through the um, the, the return on investment for for addressing an issue like this. Right. I I, I think um, I think it's more right trying to avoid uh, the con- the cost of the consequences. That's where the incentive is, and right, the people with the greatest incentive are these big transit providers. So I. I, I don't know if that's enough to get over uh, the hurdle of implementing it, but one thing that would lead me to think that it might is uh, it's a very simple system. So it's not something where we're that, that causes a lot of difficulty in implementation. Uh, there are actually scripts out there for installing these kinds of filters based on information that you receive from your peers. So I guess aside from the cost of that initial conversation and updating the, the filters, then the cost, I, I think, is manageable. So before we get into what your actual research was, how would you compare this to RPKI and ROV? Right. So that's, that's the, 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 um, the security feature that seems to be getting the most traction right now uh, and, and actually moving forward. I think at the time of the paper, something like 20% of uh, prefix uh, AS pairs had valid ROAs. Um, uh, which is good. Uh, that's good to see because sometimes security can take a long time in BGP. Um, uh, rollouts can take a while. Uh, but so they, they they cover slightly different things. So RPKI is going to protect you from uh, from reoriginations, um, and it's going to protect you from uh, potentially from uh, uh, leaking more specifics if you have like the max math, max length um, uh, stored. Um, <laughs> 
So PureLock is only really focused on those topological types of leaks. Those leaks where, where a path went in the wrong direction um, and is coming back. So those, those, are, the, um, those are the leaks that, that, uh, that uh, are covered by PureLock. So they, they're, they're kind of complementary systems, I would say. Yeah, because RPKI actually does not give you the valley relationship, right? right? At all. Right. And right. so you don't know for certain if it's still coming through a valley. So you don't get valley free routing out of RPKI. So that again, no. there's, there's been extensions proposed to it, but, I, but none of them seem to have made it very far. Right. How, yeah. how, how about the routing registries? I mean, you can, you can build a lot of this logic just by seeing what, uh, you know, what people have put in the IRRs. Um, you can build your own, your own filtering logic that accomplishes much of this. What's, how, do, how does this relate to, to doing, doing it that way? So there, uh, right. The, um, IRRs give you a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of different things you can do with IRR based filtering. And so that IRR based filtering, the quality of it depends on just the quality of information that people are putting into the IRRs. There's some problems with governance, I think, and the quality of that information and freshness. But I think the, the major difference is with, with this type of filtering, pure lock filtering, where it's making an agreement between two transit providers, you really only need those two transit providers to guarantee uh, that a leak involving one of them, say they both peer lock for one another, that a leak involving one of them doesn't pass through the other. Now with IRRs, I might, I, if I want to prevent the same leak, I might need to make sure that wherever the leak takes place, wherever the potential violation, uh, relationship violation takes place, I need that AS to store its routing policy and have an updated routing policy in order to filter that route. So I, it's much more dependent on broad participation uh, compared to PureLock, which really only depends on, you know, information that's exchanged between partners. Okay, interesting. All right, so now describe to us what you did in the paper okay. and what you came up with, what you found out. Okay, so we did a couple of things. We had a couple major experiments. But the first thing we did uh, was uh, we built a, a measurement infrastructure to sort of try to reverse engineer where people are placing these filters and uh, who they're filtering for, who different networks are filtering for. And the way we did this was through a couple of tools that are available to researchers in BGP. One of them is called Peering. And this is a very cool BGP test bed that allows you to send advertisements from 13 different points of presence around the world. So that, that allowed us to send advertisements. Uh, and the other big capability we needed was to listen for those, how those advertisements propagated through the control plane. And we use Kaida's uh, BGP stream tool for that. And that gives us access to 54 collection points around the world. So we have this capability, we can send out advertisements, and then we can listen at different points. And because of the way BGP works, uh, the updates we received at those collection points actually contain the information about the paths that the update went throughout the network. So those were our two main capabilities. And then what we did was we designed um, experiments to place these filters in the control plane. So the way the experiment worked, first we'd, we'd send a regular unpoisoned uh, originator route from these 13 points of presence. And we collect the result at all these 54 globally distributed uh, collectors. And we can build sort of a, uh, an acyclic graph for how those updates travel through the control plane from our, from our POPs, from our points of presence that we advertise them at. And then we would, immediately following that control advertisement where we build this normal path propagation, uh, we would poison some target AS. So uh, in the paper, there's several different uh, ASs that we trialed. Uh, 
uh, as target AS is. And, and this is the AS we're trying to figure out if other people are peer locking for. So the protected AS in the peer lock system. Uh, we prepend them to the route. So we add their AS to the, to the um, AS path of the experimental update. And we send that out to the control plane. So, so you're, so you're leaking. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. Uh, so if, if, if you were, if you were a human and you looked at this, it doesn't look like a leak because it's just some AS that's uh, prepended to the route uh, between, uh, you know, by the originator. But if you're a system that's looking for our, our non-authorized upstreams propagating a route with this target AS in the path, then yes, it looks like a leak. And this is the reason why our, our previous uh, studies where we were poisoning ASs ran into these filters because, right, it doesn't look like a leak to you or me. If I look at it, I can tell that it's not a route leak. Uh, it's just prepending. But uh, to these systems that worked on AS path-based filtering, it looks like a leak. What routes are you using to advertise? Like, do you have some slash 24 that you're using? or Right, uh, yeah. Mean- so the peering uh, test bed allocates experimental prefixes that okay. are only used for the purposes of this experiment and that we can receive traffic to. So, okay. So we, we send those, uh, some target AS, we send an update uh, poison for that target AS out into the control plane. Now we can gather uh, at the collectors a different propagation graph and we can compare that to the original graph and we can see where the updates are not being propagated, where they're being blocked. And of course, we don't have complete visibility because we're not sure uh, when ASs drop from that experimental graph that were in the original control graph, we don't necessarily know whether or not they filtered, but either they or someone between them and us is filtered. So then we apply some logic, some inference rules to try to determine uh, at maximum who is filtering this, at minimum who is filtering this. And we can repeat this experiment many times and apply some other logic based on AS relationships to these results. And we can point out with pretty good confidence where these kinds of filters are being placed for that target AS. And then we repeat this experiment with several other ASNs and we try to build a uh, uh, a wider understanding of where the filters are being placed and who they're filtering for. Okay, that's interesting. So what did you discover? Uh, what we discovered is some surprises and some not so much surprises. So a lot of uh, tier one ASs, those very big networks in the, in the, in the innermost core of the internet, the, the 20, 19 or 20 uh, big global networks that, that all have settlement free peering with one another, there's, there's a lot of peer lock filtering, or at least I don't want to necessarily call it peer lock filtering because peer lock is NTT's name for it, but there's defensive AS path filtering set up in between those ASs. I think if you look at all of the different uh, 19 squared connections in between all of them, I think there's, or I guess, I guess I'd have to think about that bi-directionally. So times two. Anyway, uh, there are about 48% of the possible peer lock filtering rules are actually deployed in practice between these tier one networks. A lot of peer lock deployment within that tier one click Outside of the tier one click, uh, it really starts to drop off. So there's a lot of networks that protect tier one networks. But aside from that, uh, there's not a lot of these filters out there. And that kind of makes sense because it is a manual configuration for each rule between two ASs. You know, there's a lot of poorly resourced or uh, less sophisticated networks outside the Internet's core that you wouldn't expect uh, would go to these links to, you know, configure all these filtering rules. But the, the, big, uh, the big tier one networks, we found significant deployment, some deployment outside of that. But once you get outside the very big transit AS is almost none. So in the paper, you said that peer lock by itself doesn't solve all the problems with leaking. Explain that. So, so what did you find there and, and what's, what do you need to do with that? 
Right. So there's a couple reasons that PureLock doesn't cover all the leaking. Uh, and, and the first reason is something we talked about. PureLock only covers some leak types. So there's lots of other, uh, there's lots of other leak types that aren't necessarily covered by PureLock. So you would need complementary systems like RPKI to handle those types. And then again, PureLock isn't scalable, really. It's, it's not a solution that appears to be designed for arbitrary ASs to protect. It, it really seems to be designed for those transit networks to, to set up between themselves because it is manual configuration, because it is a, a point-to-point system. You know, you don't set up one PureLock rule uh, somewhere that everyone else can read in and build filters based on. It really is a, a communication between neighboring ASs. So uh, you don't see a lot of deployment of it outside the core. So I think uh, to really solve uh, this problem, you need, a, you need a system that sort of gives you similar protection, but that maybe ne- doesn't have necessarily this manual configuration for every rule uh, limitation. Okay, that's interesting. So right now, pure locking is all manually configured and stuff like that. So, I mean, is there any work going into making it automated at all? There is, yeah. The, so there are, there are yeah. IETF drafts. I think I might have actually referenced them in the paper. I'd have to check. But um, for uh, encoding some of this peer locking information in updates in communities, so for some, some prefix, maybe attaching some idea of my authorized upstreams to a route, We've already talked about update uh, community propagation and updates and how that can be problematic. So uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the solution, but there there is some work being done on automating this process. And then again, my my lab is actually working on uh, a similar tool, something that would give PeerLock like protection, but rather than relying on manually configured rules, maybe we can use some of the information that we observe on the control plane, some of the information in ribs, to make inferences about how these uh, updates should propagate without necessarily needing for each AS to, to tell each other AS, uh, every other AS kind of uh, who their authorized upstreams are. So instead of relying only on manual communication, uh, can, we, can we go into the ribs and go into uh, historical updates and build effective filters from those? That starts to sound almost like a, like a separate BGP topology control plane sort of idea. Right. And, and there, there are problems with it as well, because, uh, you know, you, you, when you're making inferences about things rather than manually, you know, set, these are my authorized upstreams. When instead you're go- coming from the outside and making inferences about who people have AS relationships with and the nature of those relationships, you also have to account for the fact that you're going to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's one big challenge that we're also working on is how do we make this system non-intrusive? How do we make this system work in, in the presence of false positives? Well, and I've been, while well, you guys have been chatting, I've been sitting here thinking through all of the, the analytics and machine learning and all the things that we're doing now. I mean, whether you're trying to d- diagnose cancer from a medical image or something like that, like there's all kinds of intelligence that exists in the world that wasn't here, you know, decades ago when BGP came to be, but, but things like, how do you introduce a feedback loop into that system so that it can learn when it's right. wrong? The, those are the things that are particularly challenging when you talk about uh, systems where you have a, a control plane and a data plane and it's very distributed. And, and um, it, anyway, it's, it's a very interesting problem. to, to Right. Think and there's also a human element to this because uh, we want the system to be very usable. So we want it to be as simple as possible. Uh, we want it to be explainable. So when we're talking about, you know, tools like machine learning um, and things like that. We want to avoid, 
using those tools if possible because we want uh, network operators to have the confidence to put this into practice. You know, I think that's been one big challenge with uh, research in BGP. There's lots of systems. There's lots of proposed systems out there. There's lots of, you know, this would fix that. Uh, the problem is the, the network is, a, is an internetwork of 60, 70,000 ASs. And how do you get people to on board with, uh, with, with a system like this? So, yeah, so those, those kind of tools are definitely out there, but we're, we're trying to find the simplest solution that we can uh, and the most deployable solution that we can. Well, part of the, part of the reason that it, the current system and philosophy scales as well as it does is explicitly because it's missing this detail right. and this, this depth of understanding. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and you want definitely uh, the simplest, the most deployable solution you can, because BGP has been around for a long time, yeah, uh, about as long as I have. And it's worked during that time at very rapidly increasing scale. And I think network operators are slow to, uh, to just drop something into their, uh, into their routers that they don't fully understand or they think that, that it's going to cause some kind of uh, uh, performance hit or connectivity loss in the case of, you know, I, I, I characterize this route as a leak, but uh, it's the only route to this destination. And it's actually just a new path. How do you, how do you avoid causing disruption in that case? Because you don't want the, the, the medicine to be worse than disease. You, you want to be moving in a positive direction. So it's definitely a challenge, but uh, it's something that we're excited to work on. Yeah. It's also additional complexity for the provider. Right. It's one more thing that, one more thing they have to make sure is working correctly. One more thing they have to troubleshoot. Right. If it's not. And that's, that's one of the reasons I like the PeerLock system. And one of the reasons why I think our solution will, will, will take a lot of things from the PeerLock system, because I, I think we're best off when we're limiting the number of actors who have to work to make something, to make something secure to the, to the largest transit networks, to the big networks who have the, the personnel and the understanding to, uh, and, and of course, the incentive to, to put these things into practice. So I think uh, ideally we'd want a system that uh, doesn't require broad cooperation from, you know, stub ASs on the edge of the topology. It's something like PeerLock that can work uh, when only transit ASs are, are playing ball. The thing I like in gen- about, about your paper and this type of work in general is it, it seems to imply like, you know, global cooperation. And I know we just talked about it. Really only two operators need to agree on it. But when you, when you look at these, you think, wow, this, you know, if you're looking at this from the point of view of a single ASN and not the whole system, it's kind of like, well, why do I care about this problem? Like I'll just do X, Y, and Z. And then if something happens, I've got an operations team that'll handle it. But then when, when in papers like yours, you look at it from a more of a global standpoint. And I think that's why this type of research is really valuable. It helps helps all of us, I think, kind of raise our raise our minds into the real problem space, which can't be solved by definition by any one mind. Um, so I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the um, uh, that perspective difference is one of the things that that's a challenge in BGP because uh, individual operators they don't have necessarily the incentive to make the world a better place. They have the incentive to operate their network. You know, um, and and that's not to say they don't they don't have good intentions or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, they have very their goals may not align, and their their goals and their incentives may not align with this global you know improvement in BGP security. So that's definitely a, a huge challenge in BGP is how do we how do we uh, how do we encourage or incentivize all these different actors to take the steps that they need to take to secure the system? Right, run into a tragedy of the commons problem. 
It's not oh, anybody's responsibility, right? Um, I almost said that, but I feel like I'm always the tragedy of the common person. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, come on, people, care about somebody other than yourself. You know, you're going to deplete all the resources because you're being selfish. And so I was like, I'm not going to be the tragedy of the commons person. Today. So you left <laughs> it to me. It. That's so. so sweet of you, Yvonne. <laughs> uh, all right. So I think we covered it pretty well. Any other questions, Tom? Nope. No. Any other questions, Yvonne? No, I think it's I think it's a fun conversation. It's interesting stuff, and it's great to think about uh, BGP on a bigger level. And for anybody listening to this, that this was your first exposure to this kind of uh, conversation, yes, it is a miracle the internet works. <laughs> I mean, if that's your only takeaway, I'm always mystified. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty strange. All right, Tom. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to, other than your non-existent blog? Uh, well, <laughs> LinkedIn. So Tyler, he uh, does this every time. It's our thing now. <laughs> oh, I, get, okay. I take a beating for not blogging. One day I'll blog and surprise him. I'm it on. Might uh, be, it might be easier. Just you know. <laughs> might. Uh, good point. Good point. But then what will rest? I mean, then I'll have to find something else. Pick on Tom. Yeah. About. So that's yeah. right. So Yvonne, you and your non-existent blog, and you two have a challenge going, and I'm waiting to see who breaks down first. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network um, or um, LinkedIn at Yvonne Sharp. All right. Uh, Tyler, where can people follow this work or the work from uh, – you're at uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Is that correct? I am. Uh, yeah. So we have a, a lab website, uh, volsec.org, and that's V-O-L-S-E-C.org. And um, that's that's a good place to get information on what we're doing and, and the papers that we've uh, previously previously done as well. All right, awesome. And do you have a blog or Twitter or anything like that? I don't have a blog, but I don't want to get in trouble for it. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were hoping no, I wouldn't uh, ask. <laughs> right, right. No, uh, nope. Just the uh, I, I have a, a LinkedIn BT McDaniel. So that's another place you can find me. But. Um, the, uh, the lab website will have all our recent work and, and the things we're working on as well. Awesome. Well, I am Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech here on The Hedge. And I don't know, just don't PM me on Twitter. Somebody PM me on Twitter again today and I thought, what are you doing? I say this every <laughs> show, don't PM me on Twitter. And people still do it. And I'm like, do you think I'm going to answer? And it's a DM. <laughs> oh, so I'm sorry. If, it's if, a- if you really wonder if, Russ reads his DMs or is a a power Twitter user? The answer to that question is unequivocally no. No. <laughs> thanks so much, Yvonne. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.